Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. Thanks for joining us for this ASCO 2021 Highlights episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Due to the ongoing pandemic, ASCO was appropriately virtual this year, as it was last year, but with a year under our belt, the virtual format was much more developed. We're getting better at delivering content and facilitating interaction virtually. There certainly are things about the in-person meeting that we continue to miss. This year's presidential theme from ASCO President Dr. Lori Pierce was equity, every patient, every day, everywhere. More than 2,500 abstracts were presented, including some very impactful lung cancer data, which we'll go over today. I'd also like to highlight the successful ASCO Voices program, which featured personal stories focused on health equity, all of which were thoughtful and thought-provoking, including a particularly moving account by my lung cancer-considered co-host, Dr. Narjus Duma. I highly recommend going back and listening to all of those. Today, joined by two special guests, we will highlight some of the presentations at ASCO 2021 focused on lung cancer. We'll follow the grouping that ASCO uses and start with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. For that, we're pleased to have as our guest, Dr. Alfredo Adeo. Dr. Adeo is a consultant medical oncologist at the University Hospital of Geneva. He brings an international perspective, having trained and practiced in Italy, the UK, and now Switzerland. Alfredo, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Stephen. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's a real pleasure, and I'm really happy to be here with you today. Now, we want to talk about some of the lung cancer data presented, but first, Alfredo, what were your impressions of virtual ASCO? You know, compared to the in-person meeting, are there things you like more or less about this virtual format? Yeah, thank you for the question. I think there are definitely things that I like more. I think, first of all, I think it makes possible to uh, many people cannot perhaps afford traveling or can't because of uh, previous commitment. Clearly, let them the opportunity to follow the ASCO uh, virtually, so it's definitely handy and convenient. It's also the possibility to have all these presentation recorders. You can go back and listen to them. It's helpful, particularly when you have to, you know, present the data later on. There are things that are, of course, like less and the, the, the lack of human contact, the, the lack of, you know, we can't socialize together and I'm particularly missing the post-ASCO conversation, I call it, which is when you have presentation and you hang out with your friends uh, drinking coffee and you can talk about the data. This is something that cannot be replaced by, you know, chatting over Twitter or by texting each other. So Personally, I'm really looking forward to having um, standard ASCO back, but with the idea to keep perhaps the hybrid format. So to have part of it in person and part of it perhaps recorded so that many people can join the conference and have access to this data. Certainly the decreased travel helps with the carbon footprint of the meeting. I, I would agree with that. And I think overall, I do, I do miss some of the, the spontaneous collaboration that occurs when we're reacting to some of these data. Now, there are a lot of impactful lung cancer abstracts presented at ASCO 2021. We've chosen a few to discuss. Alfredo, I might ask you to start. Can you tell us about some of the new data for EGFR mutant lung cancer? Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Yes, definitely. I want to start with the uh, first abstract presented by Dr. Cho. It's the data from Chris Alice Phase 1 study where they tested the uh, amevantumab and lazertinib in combination. And... Uh, I think those data were, you know, I was really curious to see the data in terms of safety. It was a phase one study design with a dose escalation. Um, uh, and then there was this combination cohort. So when they treated 45 patients who relapsed after ozimatinib, so patients treated with ozimatinib who relapsed after the first line. So those data were very much in need, as we know that we don't have much to offer. And uh, I think the combination show overall in the intention to treat and population and response rate of about 36%, with a median progression-free survival of 4.9 months. It was, of course, safe, but what was important and interesting is the biomarker analysis that was performed. So there was part of the analysis um, presented, and there was NGS analysis performed in some of the patients, and for other, there was the immunostochemistry for EGFIMAT expression. So in, if we check in the biomarker positive group, then the response rate 
was slightly higher than what we have seen in the uh, general population with 47% and a progression-free survival slightly longer of 6.7 months. Compared to the bell market negative, where the response rate seems to be lower, 29%, the progression-free survival shorter was 4.1 months. What was particularly interesting, to me at least, was what we're seeing with the, uh, in the group with high MAT EGFR expression detected by Minister Chemistry. Um, again, uh, not all the patients, of course, underwent that analysis. It was about um, uh, 10 patients. And uh, in, in that group, the response rate was uh, remarkably, um, sorry, it was 20 patients analyzed, but 10 patients had high uh, expression. And in that group, nine out of 10 having high EGFR MAT expression responded with, so response rate of 90%, which is uh, quite interesting. So the data were clearly important. It's going to be, of course, followed by the phase 1B now for the chrysalis, what we are, of course, we need. But the subgroup analysis was really, in my opinion, very, very interesting. Um, so, Stephen, what do you think about those drugs? That seems to be, to me, quite promising, although, of course, it's it's early stage. Yeah, Fredo, I agree. Uh, you know, post-EGFR TKI therapy, we, we have few options. Chemotherapy really is our standard of care. Uh, for patients that don't have something actionable, mediating resistance, I think this combination looks promising. Amivantamab, as we know, recently has, uh, received accelerated approval by the FDA for EGFR exon 20 insertion. From a safety standpoint, I, I think it looks quite good. Uh, we do have to worry a bit about rash and infusion reactions are relatively common, but these seem pretty low grade and really front ended. It seems like they, they don't seem to occur after that first cycle. So I'm excited about these data, uh, looking for more on this combination. And, and I'll tie it into another abstract that I thought was pretty exciting. And that was abstract 9007 presented by Dr. Pasayani. This is a study of patritumab deruxtecan or HER3DXD. As we know, this is a HER3 topoisomerase 1 antibody drug conjugate. Uh, this was a phase one study and it targeted patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer that had progressed on prior TKI therapy, most of whom had progressed on osimertinib. This was a 57-patient study, showed a response rate of 39%, a disease control rate of 72%, and the median progression-free survival, pretty impressive, at 8.2 months. You know, this is a, an early study, an early look, but undeniably a promising drug. And I think both patritumab deruxtecan and amivantamab lazertinib uh, shared something in common. They showed efficacy across multiple different mechanisms of resistance, uh, particularly patritumab deruxtecan, where there were a myriad uh, different mechanisms of resistance, and this really seemed to work equally well across them. After chemotherapy, the response rate, 37%, I think quite robust, and you know we're looking for more uh, data, larger data sets here. In addition, I think that this would benefit from a combination with the TKI as well. I, I like the combination of these drugs with TKI because it allows us to maintain CNS efficacy, CNS protection, uh, control of those CNS mets. I think that's very important for this subset. Uh, and so patritumab deruxtecan, Alfredo, your thoughts on this drug? Yeah, no, I agree with you, Stephen. It's, uh, first of all, it is very important that we are seeing um, several drugs trying to tackle um, definitely a dif difficult area, which is where there is a huge need here. So overall, I think it's it's interesting. It seems to be quite effective, as you say. Perhaps um, if we're going to look at the negative aspect, it's, it's still I'm still a bit unsure uh, at the moment, or you know whether we should be using for all the patients, whether the specific biomarker, and whether we can use to better select the patient because it, the efficacy I think is going to be undeniable. It's going to just be difficult to um, know exactly which patient should benefit uh, more from this drug, but. I completely agree with you. The, the early data are very promising. I'm really looking forward to seeing more data about both um, trials and, you know, and all the drugs that we have uh, presented now. Um, I think it's the other uh, abstract that I want to mention, and we stay with the um, targeted therapy. It's, I think, what I personally consider as the uh, most important presentation, if I may, in this um, area, which was the CODBREAK 100 trial, which is the um, presented by Dr. Scolidis. And we know that in KRAS G12C, we've seen the data before about cancer harboring this mutation. And Dr. Scolidis presented a subgroup analysis. So it was the group of lung cancer, no small cell lung cancer that got treated with this drug. And again, what is interesting is that the drug received FDA accelerated approval recently. So those data were really, really um, weighted 
and I think um, it's you know it's uh, important to um, highlight the that we're talking about an area where you know until a couple of years ago there was absolutely nothing imaginable and it was always perceived as uh, an undragable infection. So anyway, the treatment was single arm. The dose was, was 960 milligram uh, once a day until progression. Of course, patients were not naive. Patients were, of course, already treated. So it was a second on line or onwards. And uh, the primary point was uh, overall response rate with other segments including the duration of response, uh, progression of overall survival and safety. Now, I think the most of the patients, as I said, had either chemotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy treatment. And what's important is the response rate was in the order of 37%, which I think it's quite good considering uh, until a few years ago, this mutation was considered undragable. We did a very high disease control rate, about 80%, uh, which is something to me quite um, remarkable. And uh, again, the progression of free survival, 6.8 months. Then they also present some data which I find particularly interesting. They explore some subgroup analysis to see whether we can identify a group of patients that might respond more or, or less to the treatment. Therefore, they performed several analyses on commutation with TP53, SDK11, and KIP1. And I think, again, small number, but I think it's intriguing to look at the difference when the um, when there is a mutation, uh, for instance, where there's wild-type mutation in KIP1 and the um, STK11 is mutated. Uh, if you look at the data, this seems to be the best group. Although, again, 22 patients, so no high number, compared to um, other groups where these uh, data seems to be um, clearly uh, inferior. If you look at the STK11, KIP1, 11 co-mutation, so if both genes present the mutation, then, then progression-free survival is 2.6 months. So it's very short. And I think... This is um, quite intriguing. So, Stephen, are you excited about these results? Is this what you were expecting to see? Yeah, I think they are quite exciting. You know, I don't have a lot of personal experience with the drug, pretty limited. I know you enrolled a lot of patients on Codebreak 100 yourself, um, but it seems to have a very wide therapeutic window, very safe. Um, and the response rate to 37% at first blush, it seems a bit lower than what we see with brigatinib and osimertinib. Um, but you know, certainly better than what we would otherwise experience with docetaxel-based therapy. Still, I wonder if we could do better if we could find some tumor or patient profile uh, that would better predict who's getting these responses, particularly the durable responses. Maybe we can get that rate even higher. For me, though, uh, immunotherapy is still my frontline preference for KRAS G12C just because the potential durability of immunotherapy responses. And KRAS, I think, is still an immune responsive tumor, but I think that sotorasib can be hugely impactful. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's a very, very important study. You know, you, you talked about Code Break 100, a study you were involved when uh, I'll talk about Arrow, which is a study that we were involved in at Georgetown, uh, Abstract 9089, that was presented by Giuseppe Carigliano that talked about prosetinib. Now, this is a drug that's already approved for RET-positive non-small cell lung cancer. What we saw was an update on the phase 1-2 ARO study in RET-fusion-positive non-small cell lung cancer. Patients who had had prior chemotherapy, and we saw the response rate, a very robust 62%, a disease control rate of 91%, and the PFS of 16 and a half months. Pretty remarkable numbers, but really what we've come to expect from these selective RET inhibitors. What was new at ASCO 21 was the frontline data. Initially, in the first-line setting, we saw response rates of 79% and disease control rate of 93%, but these patients were not eligible for chemotherapy. That's how the trial was originally written. It was then updated and that caveat was removed. After that update, that eligible population that got frontline prosetinib had a response rate of 88%. So almost 90% response rate of disease control of 96% and the median PFS not yet reached. To me, uh, really quite remarkable. Uh, this drug now does have accelerated approval by the FDA. Uh, Alfredo, let me ask you this question. You see a RET fusion positive lung cancer are you in favor of using these selective RET inhibitors? We have prosetinib. We also have selpercatinib in the first-line setting before chemotherapy. That's a great question. Um, if I could, I would. So I, I had the discussion several times. Now we in Switzerland we have uh, the drug selpercatinib is available at second line, so it's not available up front. But if I could, I would certainly use the first line. As a, an interesting point, if I may, is that. My experience, of course, is limited, but I have to say that the patients I had treated with chemo IO and then moved to RAT 
um, inhibitor, they, they all responded very well to, to chemo IO. I don't know whether it was the pentrexid, perhaps. Uh, I, I, so it is also true that this uh, type of cancer is quite sensitive to at least chemotherapy. Not sure, of course, about the, the fact that immunotherapy is adding a lot to it. But to answer your question, of course, if I had access for the slide, I would use it. I know that our trial ongoing um, uh, versus chemotherapy treatment, so I, I don't think at least in my country that I will be able to use it for slide until the trial is, is completed. So um, I think another uh, interesting presentation uh, was the uh, about the Checkmate 9 LA. It was the two years update presented by uh, Dr. Reck and I, again, uh, I find this trial very intriguing and interesting. Again, this is not the first time the trial got presented, this is the two years update. We all know the trial was positive and basically the rationale was to compare the chemotherapy, uh, which was when the trial was started, the standard um, treatment versus chemotherapy plus nivolumab and ipilimumab, so an anti-PD-1 and anti-CTL4. We know that the, the, the trial was clearly positive, primary point was OS, and secondary point PFS and overall response rate. It was presented, it clearly was also in terms of overall survival and progression-free survival. Now we have the two years update, and what is interesting is that, that basically it, it remains clearly positive with a median OS of about 15.8 months versus 11 months of chemotherapy treatment. And the uh, two years update is showing very clearly on the curve that the two curve remain uh, quite widely separated with 38% of patients alive on the uh, experimental arm versus 26%. So, that's uh, really good data here. And my problem with this trial is that this is clearly positive. Uh, it remains clearly positive at two-year date, but I struggle to fit that schedule in my treatment regimen. Another question for you, Stephen. So where do you see any room for this trial in your practice? And whether you'll be using it, uh, you already use it, or whether you're going to use that be more now that you've seen the two years update? That's a good question, Alfredo. I think that uh, you know Checkmate NLA has some some positives here. You have a little more flexibility with the regimens you're using. I'm reassured by these data with a little bit more follow up. Um, if we look at some of the subgroups like squamous, non small cell lung cancer, like PDL1 negative, there really seems to be some some added benefit there. You know, one thing that's nice about this regimen is if someone has a modest period of progression free survival and then were to unfortunately relapse my second line regimen becomes platinum doublet chemotherapy. Whereas with the chemo IO regimens, my second line regimen really is, is docetaxel-based therapy. And so that does give it a, a slight advantage, but you're right. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly where this fits uh, in our current paradigm of uh, monotherapy and chemo IO, um, which, which are both very effective regimens. Uh, I want to close with, with one abstract that was particularly important given the theme of, of this year's ANSCO with equity, and that was abstract 9005 presented by Dr. Deborah Bruno. This really highlighted racial disparities in biomarker testing and clinical trial enrollment. You know, what we saw was using flat iron data, patients uh, of different racial backgrounds had different outcomes. We saw that the incidence of EGFR mutations, ALK fusions was the same, for example, in black patients and white patients. Black patients were less likely to have molecular testing, less likely to get tested early, less likely to have full next-generation sequencing, and ultimately, less likely to enroll in clinical trials. Now, this was supported by Abstract 9001 uh, by Dr. Ackenborough that showed uh, in the landmark Phase three chemo-IO trials, Black patients represented only 2% of patients enrolled on those studies, a gross underrepresentation. And one really has to wonder, why do we have so much disparity in our clinical trials? And I think more importantly, how do we fix that? I personally think that that you know one reason we don't see as much diversity in trial enrollment is that we don't have as much diversity in trial lists as we should have. And hopefully diversity in the workforce and, and in leadership will help to, to eventually improve that. But this is an area that we really need to improve on immediately. Uh, Alfredo, I'm curious, do you think you see these types of disparities outside the U.S.? That's a great question, Stephen. I got to be honest with you, after the presentation by Dr. Bruno, I, I checked a bit of literature because I, I was really um, intrigued by this data. And it's difficult because in my, in my practice, I can't really say that it's something that I experienced. But, and I check also in the literature and I haven't 
done much uh, outside of the states, which doesn't mean that they're specific of the states. It is perhaps the fact that in the states you are kind of you know attentive. You you are very sensitive to this type of information. So I think the problem is real. And and if I may um, throw something in, I was really um, a bit disappointed to see in general. The, the rate of the NGS testing in the States in general, um, in the whole population, because it was true, it was lower um, and the black population, but even in the, in the general population altogether, uh, it was, I mean, lower than what I would expect. I wasn't expecting 100%, but I think at some point I, I saw something close to 50 to 52% or something like that have it tested for metastatin, which, which I think was quite disappointing in my opinion. And, and it's something that I, I don't think I was... Um, I don't think I could imagine such a lower level. Um, is that something that Stephen you were expecting? You're not, you know, surprised to see such lower level of NGS testing in general? Well, well, brace yourself, Alfredo. The number is actually quite a bit lower than that. I think what you're quoting was the My Life study that looked at, you know, in a community setting, the rate of testing for five biomarkers that was EGFR, ALK, ROS, BRAF, and PDL1. Okay. Testing for all five was 49%. The testing rates for NGS are going to be quite a bit lower than that. And, uh, you know, hopefully that does improve over time. We have all these advances with all these effective targeted agents, but they only work if we identify the target. So we, we certainly have more work to, to do. And I think education and improved patient advocacy really is at the, the heart of how we improve those numbers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I do wonder why it's just a matter of education or it's just a, you know, system failure. Because I, I don't think that if we have a conversation with our oncologists and pathologists, they would not and know how important it is to perform the ingest. It is more about putting pathways, clear pathways that are, this is my opinion at least, that make it possible. Education is the key, yeah, it's important, but having clear pathway where you know exactly that each sample needs to be analyzed and how it has to be analyzed, who has to do it, how quickly it has to be done, I think this is, to me, imperative to make it happen. Yeah, it's it's all of the above. You know, clearly every oncologist wants the absolute best for their patient. No one is, is ever questioning that, but we need to make it easy to do. We need to make it accessible. And those are things that as a as a group uh, globally, we need to improve on. You know, Alfredo, we could we could talk indefinitely for, for all these things. There are a lot of other great abstracts in this section, but but we do have to move on for sake of time. So Alfredo, many thanks for taking the time to join us. And I guess we'll see you at the next virtual or, or in-person meeting. Yeah, thank you very much, Stephen. I will absolutely want to see you back live and not just virtual. And uh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Now, there were also many important presentations for early stage non-small cell lung cancer and for small cell lung cancer. To help us discuss some of those trials, we're joined by Dr. Heather Wakeley. Dr. Wakeley is a professor of medicine and the chief of the Division of Oncology at Stanford University. She's also the president-elect of the IASLC. Heather, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Heather, this was a a very successful virtual ASCO. Numbers just came out today that show there were over 32,000 participants, 24 oral abstract sessions, 48 poster and poster discussion sessions, and 31 sessions specifically on the 2021 presidential theme of equity. We've just been talking to Alfredo about the pros and cons of the virtual format. Are there aspects of the virtual meeting that you like or parts of the live meeting that you particularly miss? Plenty on both sides of those. Um, With the virtual meeting, it's certainly great to have the flexibility to still be at home. Uh, One of my daughters actually had her prom, so I got to be home for that and help her get ready and see her off, which I would have missed. However, the, the downsides of the virtual meeting to me greatly outweigh the upsides because I really missed the opportunity to engage with people, talk about the data as it was coming out, connect with everybody, uh, just be a, a part of that whole vibe and, and just be part of the whole lung cancer research community and really did miss that. The, uh, the tweets and the uh, texting was okay, but did not in any way make up for it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, I personally think the most anticipated abstract reviewed results from Empower 10, the randomized phase three trial of adjuvant atezolizumab in resected non-small cell lung cancer. This was a major study that you presented. Now, before we hear about the the practice changing data, can you tell us about the experience? You know, when we give an oral presentation in front of our peers and you've given more than most, I think a lot of us still get a little nervous. Certainly I still do. So how different is it in the virtual format? 
I prefer the live presentations myself. I, I get energy from the room. So I'm one of those people. I, I, of course, get nervous, but I don't get overly nervous. I'm okay getting up on the podium and just speaking. And I, I tend to have a bit more of an informal presentation style. So that goes well with being able to be comfortable up and giving the live live talk. The uh, recorded ones, I think I'm a bit more critical. Any um or uh or pause or any of those sorts of things really irk me when it's recorded. And so I find that it's re-recorded and re-recorded versus when it's live, you're free. You just, you give the talk, whatever little minor thing there was, it just happened to be, and you just move on. But with the recorded, you have to keep going back. So I, I'm looking forward to when we can do virtual, uh, you know, go away with from the virtual and just be uh, doing live again. So that's my thought about it. Now, let's talk a little bit about this study. Can you remind us about the study design? Sure. So Empower 010, which was abstract 8,500 at this ASCO 2021, was a randomized phase three trial looking at adjuvant atezolizumab for early stage lung cancer. So eligible patients had undergone surgical resection for stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer, and they were then enrolled and then got chemotherapy. So we have all the chemotherapy data for all of the patients who went on this study. The patients who wanted to continue, and we did have about 200 patients who dropped out um, during the chemotherapy portion, but those who wanted to continue were then randomized. We randomized just over a thousand patients, 1,005 patients to receive atezolizumab for up to a year or to just be followed best supportive care, which is of course the standard of care at this time. The patients were stratified by PDL1. And I'll note that when we started the study, uh, we were, Genentech was using the SP142 assay, which looks at not just the tumor cell PDL1 expression, but also immune infiltrating cell PDL1 expression. But as the study over time, the world kind of changed and we moved away from that assay to the other PDL1 assays, which are all tumor based only. So the analysis was actually done with the SP263, which lines up more with uh, most of the other uh, PDL1 assays, as ISLC showed with the blueprint analysis. So that's one caveat. And we had some other stratification factors as expected stage and, and sex. The study was looking at several different endpoints. The primary endpoint was looked at hierarchically. So the first population we were looking at were patients who had PDL1 expression of at least 1% and were stage 2 or 3A. And then the next step was to look at all comers with stage 2 to 3A, the next step to bring in the 1Bs, and then overall survival is the final step. And we're, we're not there yet. Um, a couple of things to talk about with the patient population. As I said, this was just over a thousand patients. Two thirds were non-squamous histology, one third squamous. For the non-squamous, we did require that they had testing for EGFR and ALK. About a little over 10% had EGFR mutations, about 3% had ALK. We also had a, a kind of a, it was a global study, um, but the study tended to have enrolled predominantly Caucasian patients. There was a, about 20% or so that were Asian, um, but very little of other ethnic groups. So that's one of the issues people need to be aware of. I think more critically, as far as the analysis, when we look at the PDL1 levels, 55% of the patients who went on the study did have PDL1 positivity using that SP263 assay. So what is the, the take home um, from the study was disease-free survival. And the, again, the first population we looked at was disease-free survival in patients who had PD-L1 expression and had stage two to three A. And I'll note that only 12% of patients had stage one B. So this population stage two to three A, that was nearly 90% of the patient population. And then the PDL1 expression was in 55%. And in that group, the disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0.66. So that's a 34% reduction in disease recurrence or death. Um, that's pretty striking. I, you know, you go back in time to chemotherapy and with the chemotherapy there, our disease-free survival hazard ratios were about 0.84, which later translated into overall survival benefit. So the 0.66 is sort of the, the key take home. Um, we then looked at the patient population, all comers with uh, stage two to three A, 
And there, the disease-free survival hazard ratio was still statistically significantly positive, but it was 0.79. So then you say, well, hmm, is it all PDL1? And it looks like it is, because in the patients whose tumors did not express PDL1, the disease-free survival hazard ratio was 0.97, so negative. Um, already said that 0.66 for the greater than one. In the greater than 50% PDL1 expressing tumor patient population, there that hazard ratio for disease-free survival is 0.43. So pretty exciting. We do not yet have enough events to have crossed the significance boundary for the whole intensive treat population, bringing in that 12% with a stage 1B. The prelim on that looks like it's trending about the same. Uh, it's about 0.81, but again, we don't have that significance at this time. And overall survival, of course, very, very preliminary, but there does seem to be a hopeful slight separation of curves. Um, and then of course, toxicity, no surprises but we do see toxicity with atezolizumab as we do with any of the checkpoint inhibitors. And so that is something we need to continue to be mindful of as this moves forward. So that's sort of a recap of the data. Um, Stephen, do you think this is practice changing? Yeah. 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 I think it's absolutely <laughs> practice changing. I thought that these were really exciting. I, you know, we've been waiting for these results and we have a lot of other studies ongoing, but it has a ratio of 0.66 and that PD1 positive, I think is, is pretty remarkable. I've heard a lot of our colleagues sort of pick apart things. And, and some of the concerns are totally reasonable. Others, maybe not so much. I've heard some people concerned that there were people that, you know, patients enrolled that had unknown EGFR status. But as you mentioned, those were primarily the squamous lung cancer, where it's not really standard to test. I'm totally okay with that. I've heard some people have concerns about the hierarchical statistical design. That is very common in, in a phase three registrational trial. I mean, we, we see that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, one concern though that I, I do share is that PDL1 low. And I think that as time goes on, we'd love to see a little bit more granularity in that subset. In the PDL1 high, the DFS has a ratio of 0.43. I don't know how you can not sort of be blown away by that. This is a, a, a setting where recurrence is very common. So a hazard ratio of 0.43, I think for DFS is uh, practice changing immediately. I think the PDL1 positive group that has a ratio of 0.66 is uh, to me, practice changing as well. I think I would like to see the one to 49%. I would like to see OS, but that's going to take years. And you and I, we need to make decisions today. So overall, we balance the risks and benefits. It's well tolerated. And when it comes to risk, frankly, when I'm in that room, I think the greater risk is the risk of recurrence because I'm not nearly as confident that I can salvage someone with IO as I am with a targeted agent. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think they're, they're practice changing. And Heather, maybe I can use that as a transition. I think there are some parallels. The, you know, the other study where we're discussing the relative merits of DFS when OS isn't available is Adora. Uh, and at last year's ASCO, our colleague, Dr. Roy Herbst, showed a significant improvement in DFS with three years of adjuvant osimertinib compared to placebo. Uh, there was an abstract I'd love to talk to you about, and that, that was this year, Dr. Hirohito Tada presented results from the randomized phase three impact study. That was abstract 8501. And this was a little different. It compared two years of adjunctivitinib, so an older TKI, shorter therapy, to chemotherapy. So not TKI after chemo, TKI instead of chemo for resected stage 2-3 EGFR-positive non-small cell lung cancer limited to those common DEL-19, LA58R mutations. Uh, the study had 234 patients. Uh, the majority were N2. Uh, and Jafitinib had a better median progression-free survival, 36 months versus 25 months, a big difference. We see those PFS curves split right away. They widen over the first couple of years while patients are on TKI. And that two-year DFS rate really does favor TKI, 64% versus 52%. Then when the patients stop TKI after two years, those DFS curves start to come together and at four years, they cross. As a result, with a median follow-up of 70 months, that DFS hazard ratio is right around one at 0.92. The five-year DFS rate, the same, 34% um, with chemo, 32% with gefitinib. No difference in OS, hazard ratio 1.03, no difference in the five-year survival rate. And the key data here is in subsequent treatment. In this study, if you were randomized to chemotherapy and relapsed, 93% got TKI therapy. Um, 62 out of 68. So to me, these data are fascinating and so consistent with what we've seen before from Dr. Nate Pinnell's SELECT trial. Um, you know, relapse after adjuvant TKI is pretty common. And 
you know, we can salvage patients quite well, 93%. So it didn't really seem like gefitinib was preventing relapse. It just seemed to be delaying relapse. And I think the natural question we ask ourselves, will the same paradigm play out in Adora, um, you know, which is still fairly immature. So over time, will those two curves meet? So how do these data influence your personal perspective on Adora? Is that still something that, that you're going to be offering to patients? It's a great question. And I'm going to branch out a little bit because we've we've had a number of studies now that have looked at question of EGFR, TKI versus chemotherapy. So the adjuvant trial was a very similar design to impact uh, performed in China. And we've heard also there the disease-free survival hazard ratio, quite striking, 0.56. Again, it was two years of uh, adjuvant gefitinib with the curves then starting to come together year, year three, year four, and then no overall survival. So I have that same concern and I, I voiced it with Adora as well. This idea that while someone is on, and well, let's back up. We're dealing with early stage cancer. We're trying to cure. And so we know that surgery can cure. We know that adding chemotherapy can improve cure the overall survival is our surrogate for whether we've truly cured people or not. And so I have concern with the EGFR TKI adjuvant studies to date that we haven't seen that OS benefit, implying that perhaps we're not changing that that cure possibility. And perhaps we are just suppressing any residual cancer that exists for the period of time that someone's on the treatment. And then when we stop it, the disease comes back. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you can take adjuvant osimertinib for three years and during that three years have a very, very low chance of recurrence, low chance of brain metastases, that's actually a good thing. And it, it, we should be offering that. Yeah. And I think that the question then is, well, how long do we need to give the treatment? Maybe three years isn't enough, or maybe from the impact and adjuvant two years wasn't enough. And really we need to be thinking about this as a lifelong suppressive therapy that's really going to help people to continue to live a full life. Yes, taking a medication with some side effect, but without having to deal with all of the ramifications of having advanced stage cancer. So that's a that's a plus. Where I think we really need to get to is being able to tell which patients need that treatment lifelong and which patients were already cured and don't need it at all. That's the CTDNA and other technologies. And I think it's the same with any adjuvant treatment. We could talk about that in the era of chemotherapy. And now when we're talking about the immune therapy era, I think we've got those same questions. We don't want to be subjecting every person to having to get an immune checkpoint inhibitor with the inherent risks. But we absolutely want to be offering it to people who still have some residual cancer despite having had surgery and chemotherapy especially if they have a tumor as indicated by pdl one expression, that's potentially going to benefit from that treatment. I'm going to add to that a little bit more and say that when we talk about chemotherapy, when we talk about immune therapy, the idea that we might actually be curing to me makes a bit more biological sense than when we're dealing with the TKI. So I am holding out that hope that as we get more mature data from Empower O&O, that that separation we're starting to see in the survival curves pans out. And I'm heartened by the fact that if you look at our disease-free survival curves, you know, we've got follow-up at almost out to three years on average, the treatment stopped after one year. And for those two years, when patients were no longer on treatment, the curves are not coming together. So that's where I, I have a little bit of hope there. That's very well put. I, I agree with basically every point, every point that you put out there. I think I'm hoping the legacy of Adora really would be that there's some marker of minimal residual disease that'll you know identify patients destined for relapse who benefit from targeted therapy. And in those patients, that hazard ratio will be even better. And then you have to, I agree, you have to wonder, you know, is there really a duration of therapy or are those patients simply not cured and need to remain on, on therapy? But your first point of you know, for a patient, is there value, inherent value in disease-free survival in and of itself for a period of time? You know, I don't think this is an, an era where we can be dogmatic and assume that my values are the values of my patients. And mm -hmm. so this is a setting where we need shared decision-making. We need to uh, sort of acknowledge the unknown and make a decision together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a, a very similar abstract that I think sort of 
he raises some interesting questions. That was 8502 presented by Professor Yilong Wu. And that looked at the final OS results from the phase two CTONG 1103 trial. That was neoadjuvant erlotinib. Um, so you got erlotinib for 42 days before surgery and then a year of erlotinib afterwards. Or you had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, two cycles of gemsis neoadjuvant, two cycles of gemsis adjuvant. Um, this was a small study, 72 patients, EGFR mutant lung cancer, one-on-one randomization. Now, in this study, PFS did favor the TKI group, though a little bit less over time. Uh, this was originally presented at ESMO a couple of years ago, but with a median follow-up of over five years, there was no difference in OS, hazard ratio of 0.83, but that confidence interval right around one. Um, and you know the parallels between this study and you know what, what we just saw in the impact study are that the main predictor of survival was, did you get subsequent TKI? And in that chemo arm, 70% did get subsequent TKI, and those patients did quite well. But to me, this brings up a really interesting sort of dichotomy here. In in this study, the salvage rate was 70%. In in the impact study, it was 93%. That's a big difference to me. And if I say, well, we don't need to give therapy now, there's a 93% chance we'll be able to salvage this at the time of relapse. It's very different than 70%. And so what I'd love to see over the next year or so is really identifying what those barriers to salvage therapy were, because if we're less likely to be able to effectively treat at relapse, I think the importance of adjuvant therapy really, really goes up. Uh, Heather, I don't know if you had uh, thoughts about this study or maybe in general about neoadjuvant versus adjuvant therapy, and if it's different for these targeted versus the immunotherapy groups. That's a really important question. And it's one that we, you know, the age old question of neoadjuvant versus adjuvant, we certainly spent many years trying to answer that with chemotherapy and came up with not that big of a difference. With the TKI data, this is really the the major study that looked at it. And it's not a major study, it's a small phase two, um, but it's gonna, it was a very difficult study for them to enroll. Um, I remember the presentation at ESMO just took a long time. So I don't know that we're gonna have much more data here. It certainly makes sense when you think about TKIs have incredibly high response rates when given in the appropriate setting of a driver mutation, and you're going to shrink the tumor, which might help with surgical resection. And remembering these were stage 3A patients, so high disease burden. So that part's helpful. Does it really impact then the the truly meaningful disease-free survival, overall survival endpoints? Here, better than chemo and reducing disease-free or progression-free survival, but not really much different with overall survival, especially because the patients who had chemo then went on to get their EGFR TKI at the time of relapse. So I'm not sure if this is going to be the right approach. We certainly are going to have more data from the NeoAdora study, which is giving neoadjuvant osimertinib. And so as that data comes out, we will probably have more to be able to really talk about whether there's a good role for neoadjuvant TKIs. Personally, I think we're we're not going to move away from having an adjuvant component um, when we're dealing with TKI therapy, just because I do think it's more of a cytostatic uh, type of approach where we're just keeping that tumor suppressed. When we think about Immune therapies, though, perhaps there's going to be a bigger role for neoadjuvant. And we we did get some updates at ASCO this year with abstract 8503 by Jonathan Spicer. And this was the um, update on the neoadjuvant nivolumab study. So this was looking at uh, patients who had had, um, were diagnosed early stage cancer, randomized to receive chemotherapy for three cycles prior to surgery or chemotherapy plus nivolumab. Um, And this was 358 patient randomized study. And we got some of the updates earlier. Um, This was looking specifically at the surgical um, outcomes from that trial. And it's important to note that here again, there was a high percentage of stage 3A patients, two thirds of the patients almost were stage 3A. And there were some 1B and, and stage two. They looked at the surgical outcomes particularly here, and um, every surgical outcome that they explored was better for the patients who got the nivolumab added to the chemotherapy. So they were fewer canceled surgeries, uh, fewer pneumonectomies versus lobectomies. A, A lot of things of that nature were really felt to be improved by the addition of the nivolumab. There were more minimally invasive surgeries on the nivolumab arm, fewer conversions to open thoracotomy. But what's really striking is the data looking at the median, median amount of residual viable tumor at the time of surgery. 
And so when you looked at those numbers for the patients who got the nivolumab versus the patients who didn't, who just got the chemotherapy night and day, as far as the amount of viable residual tumor. So we were down in the uh, 10 to 30% range for those getting the chemo nivolumab and closer to 70, 80% for those who had just had chemotherapy. So that I think bodes well for uh, better disease-free and overall survival outcomes potentially. Of course, we don't have any of that data yet, so that's just speculation. With this new adjuvant approach, we get data earlier as far as the surgical outcomes, and theoretically that should translate into the patient meaningful outcomes like disease-free and overall survival, but we don't know yet. So Stephen, I'm curious to know what your uh, thoughts are about this data, and is it what you were expecting to see, and what do you think this is going to mean for the future as well? You know, I, I got to say, I was a little bit surprised. I mean, we saw earlier when when Dr. Patrick Ford, you know, showed those PCR rates. This clearly is having some effect. And in my head, we we have that positive effect, and that would be balanced by maybe a little bit more complicated surgery. You know, I, I don't know if your surgeons mentioned the there's the thought of maybe more perihilar fibrosis, or would we have more complications as a result of that inflammatory response? So when when Dr. Spicer went up and showed. We were doing more minimally invasive. We were doing less conversions, and the surgery times were shorter significantly. It, it just seemed like win-win. Uh, so, you know, I guess in, in retrospect, a better way to look at it is when you give a more effective therapy with a higher chance of response, with deeper responses, it's going to make the surgery easier. And, and I guess that makes sense. And it goes back to what you were saying about TKIs in that space. And I would expect the same thing there. So. IO is clearly going to make a major impact in early stage non-small cell lung cancer. Really that question of neoadjuvant, adjuvant, both. I think that's what we'll be dealing with over the next decade. But uh, you know, these were some some big results over the past few months that we've seen. And we'll add that to to our list, you know, because we're already seeing a, a big difference in locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. We routinely use consolidation immunotherapy after chemoradiation, as established by Pacific. Um, I don't know if you, maybe you can update us on the Pacific uh, data. Yeah, that was an abstract 8511 presented at ASCO 2021 by David Spiegel. And of course, we get updates on Pacific at all of our major conferences because it just continues to be super exciting. This uh, Pacific, of course, uh, took patients who had completed chemotherapy and radiation and randomized them to get nivolumab or not. And this was for patients with unresectable stage three non-small cell lung cancer. And we had, you know, this study initially was published, New England Journal, based on the disease-free survival outcome, which was great. And then a year later, we had the overall survival data um, and, of course, the indication, and this has become standard of care. So with this update, they showed that with Dervalumab, the median overall survival was 47.5 months versus 29.1 months uh, without. Hazard ratio there is 0.72 Another way of looking at this, though, is the five-year overall survival rates, 42.9%. And again, these were unresectable stage three, over 40% five-year survival versus 33.4% without progression-free survival has a ratio of 0.55. And they you know, talked about that progression-free survival rate at five years, 33%, meaning that of the patients on this trial who got the drivalumab after their concurrent chemoradiation a full third of them were alive without evidence of cancer at five years. And you know that's probably a cure compared to less than 20% without. So really exciting. Um, and really, I think, confirming to me that that should be the standard of care, except in patients who have driver mutations or other reasons where we don't think that the Dervalumab is going to be as beneficial. What are your thoughts on this data, Stephen? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the the whole appeal of immunotherapy is the durability of benefit. You know, you said it yourself earlier, these long, meaningful responses, and for some patients, a cure. And that's why I think these long-term follow-up data are actually really important to see. And, you know, what we want to see with Pacific is exactly what we do see, this flat tail where, you know, once you make it out a couple of years, your chance of progression from year to year is, is pretty minimal. And frankly, if I had someone that was receiving Pacific, had relapse a couple of years later, I think it's probably a separate uh, primary cancer uh, at that point. So uh, th- these flat tails, I think, are, are remarkable. And this is really our standard of care. I'll be ashamed to deprive any patient of that type of benefit. Uh, I'll just segue here to to an area where maybe we, we need a little more of that, and that's small cell lung cancer. 
And I, I want to mention specifically abstract 8510. I think this is an important one. That was presented by Dr. Taufika Wanakoko. Uh, he updated data on AMG 757. Uh, this drug now has a name, tarlatamab. This is a bite molecule, a bispecific T-cell engager that targets both DLL3 and CD3. And they updated data from 66 patients. They report an encouraging confirmed response rate of 20%, a duration of response of nine months, a time to response, 1.8 months. Um, and you know, overall, he described this as being fairly well tolerated. Uh, to me, I, I'm excited by the new drug, a new mechanism of action. I think this is a, a good target and a way to really get uh, more durable responses. I just kind of have two concerns. You know, one is while overall it did seem well tolerated, they did see cytokine release in 44% of patients. Only 2% were grade three, but this is done at highly specialized academic centers. And I, I wonder if we move this into the community, will we see that number go up? We'll see more complications uh, emerge. I also think that, you know, there's this subset of small cell that has this different biology that are able to get to trials. Um, that, that sort of live a little bit longer and maybe they're overrepresented in these smaller select studies, underrepresented when we follow them up in larger trials, maybe a big reason why we see so many promising phase twos in small cell that are just negative in phase three. And when we look at this uh, breakdown of the demographics, 27% had more than three lines of therapy. I don't know if that's a representative population for relapse small cell. And it makes me think a little bit of that Checkmate 032 Nevo Ipi data. And when we did it sort of more second line, more right away, it was a little disappointing. You know, Heather, you've seen this drug. Is this a promising agent for small cell in your opinion? It could be. I'm actually, I was more struck not by how many people had had third line, but the fact that 73% of the patients on this trial had only had one or two prior therapies. So with small cell, that's a pretty chemosensitive disease. And we do have a lot of activity of some combinations or single agent drugs. So that confirmed response rate of only 20% wasn't as impressive to me. It's certainly worth continuing to look at it, but I don't know that we're hitting a home run here. I also had some concerns with the toxicity, including that cytokine release. There was a grade five pneumonitis. Now, again, we can see that with almost any of our uh, lung cancer therapeutics, but just a, a few words of, of caution. It is an exciting novel compound, new strategy. So I'd like to see this moving forward, but I'm, I'm not necessarily on the bandwagon yet. So I think we'll just have to, to see what time tells us about this. Yeah, this is one that we'll really need to to let mature for a little while. We won't be rushing into that. You know, there's there's so much more we could cover, Heather. You, you seem to know everything about all of these abstracts, but it is time to start wrapping up this podcast. So I, I'd like to to thank our listeners for tuning in. I really want to thank Heather and Alfredo both for for making the time today. Heather, I know you're very busy, so so thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. It's it's a pleasure, and and this is the kind of conversation I miss from being at Live Asco. It's just being able to really tear apart the data, think about it with my my friends and colleagues who are having those same thoughts. And this has been great. Absolutely. So that's that's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope you'll tune in the first and third week of every month to give us a listen. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it with your colleagues and friends, and we'll see you next episode. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 